Good morning, everybody. Allow me to read to you from Exodus 12, verses 1 to 13. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to the father's houses, a lamb for each household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill the lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted with its head, with its legs, and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. In this manner, you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and the staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It's the Lord's Passover, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Thank you. There we go. Great. Thank you for reading. Um, so for those of you who don't know me, my name's Ian, as Louise said, and it's great to be with you this morning. This is amazing. <laughs> I don't think I've preached a room this full in ages, and this is just beautiful, and worshiping together, it's, um, it's, it's, it's so good. Last week, I came to both meetings, the morning and the evening, just because I had serious FOMO of missing out. I had nothing to do other than just be with people. I was like, I'm going. I said to Layla, do you want to come, a little three-and-a-half-year-old? Do you want to come with me to church? She goes, the government said I can't. So I'm raising a conspiracy theorist there. And I go, we're allowed to now. We're allowed to. So she's like, okay, we're going. We're going twice. She's like, oh. We get in the car. We're driving to church. She's like, that car's going to church. That car's going to church. And every car we pass, she was so excited to be here. And that's kind of how I'm feeling this morning. So excited to be with God's people again. And um, it's been a full weekend, a good weekend. I've just come back from an advanced Future Shapers time away, weekend away. And what that is, is basically taking people in that kind of decision decade of life where you, from 18 to 28, where you kind of make the fundamental decisions about life, things that lay the foundations for the rest of your life, and, and really trying to inspire young leaders of the future, um, men and women, to, to make those decisions in light of who Christ is. 
And so from around churches all over Cape Town, we had um, people between 18 and 28 come and join us, 65 of them. And it was so good to be away. And what's so amazing is that as that first quarter worship on the first day, not a word had been said, basically, as that first quarter, it was just worship. Hearts being poured out to God. 65 people honestly sounded like 500 people. It was amazing. Such a good time. And I'm so excited about the future and what God is doing in that decision decade. And then I had to drive back to come and preach. And I'm I'm not saying that they're better than you, but I do have serious FOMO about being here and not there. Um, But this worship was amazing too. Okay, so where are we in Exodus? So we're carrying on our Exodus series, and it's been a, we've covered decades in a few, few weeks, and we've covered a lot, and we are covering a lot. And we had Ryan a few weeks ago kind of kick off the Exodus series and give us the full overview of Exodus and what to expect. And then I got to speak about a God who reveals himself, and we saw the burning bush, and we saw um, God call Moses and reveal himself to Moses. And then last week, we saw the, the battle unfolding between Pharaoh and Yahweh as plague after plague was unleashed in Egypt as Pharaoh's heart, heart was hardened and God said, I am the real God. And Pharaoh refused to believe and said, no, I'm the real God. Carl did such a good job of showing us the just judge, judgments of God, the just justice of God, and how even in those two things, God is patient with those who are undeserving and merciful with those who are undeserving. And this week we, we pick up in the 12th plague, and the final, I mean the 10th plague and the final plague um, before God's people are released. And I've got an interesting question for us that I think, and an invitation that I think sits at the center of these plagues and it's going to seem disconnected. But I really do believe at the center of these plagues, at the center of what God is doing in his people, and at the center of the Christian faith is an invitation. And um, I want to ask you, how... How did it feel to come back to church, whether it was last week or this week, to come back to being in person? There's something about getting up, getting dressed, and coming to church that is different to getting up, staying undressed, and coming to church in front of a computer, and um, with your cup of coffee. And I wonder, for some of us, what it felt like to come back to church. I wonder if there was a sense of, it's been a while, better gear up for this. There's some stuff that I've, I should kind of hide and maybe build a little bit of a wall because if I come through, people can't know that my life's gotten that out of control or that thing has crept up in my life. And I wonder if there was a sense of gearing up as you came to church today, preparing. What can I say? What can't I say? What can, what can I share? What shouldn't I share? A bit of mask wearing in a different sense. But you see, at the center of the Christian faith is this invitation from the person Jesus in Matthew 11. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me, because I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. I think there are two kind of burdens. There's the burden of COVID. There's the burden of COVID, and we're carrying burdens that, that, that we would never have to carry if it weren't for this season that we're in. So all of us have underlying burden already. But then there's another kind of burden, the burden that comes from all the things we're trying to hide because we misunderstand what is at the center of the Christian faith as we come into this community. And, and in amongst 
judgment and among justice and amongst plagues, we're going to find this wonderful invitation to rest in the most unlikely place. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to go through Exodus 12 together, and we're going to look at the triumph of God, we're going to look at the grace of God, and we're going to look at the Lamb of God. Let's pray together. Father, you are good. You are so good. You are so kind. You're so patient and you're merciful. But God, we thank you that you're also just and that you deal with things, you deal with injustice in a very real and powerful way. And Father, we come before you as your people, longing to find your rest, longing to find your goodness, longing to see you for who you are. So Father, whether we we find ourselves bounding into church, super excited to be with people, or we find ourselves somewhere in the middle, just I'm excited, but no one must find out about these things, or we, we dragged ourselves here feeling burdened and unworthy, God, would you meet us? Would you speak to us? Because God, you invite us to come as we are and encounter the living God. We love you, Jesus. We need you, and we rest in you. Amen. Okay. So as we pick up this 10th plague, I keep wanting to say 12th plague, so forgive me if I do. 10th plague, um, what, what we see is now is the time. Now is the moment that God is going to act decisively against Pharaoh and Egypt. Chapter 11, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, yet one more plague I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. So it's been plague after plague, tussle after tussle, um, offer of mercy, rejection of mercy, hardening of hearts, more plagues. And and I'm sure Moses is getting to a point, when, God, when is it going to all end? When is it all going to happen? And this is the moment where God says, now. Now it's going to happen. And we we read earlier how they must be ready, belts on, eat this roast lamb with belts on, ready to go, shoes on, staff in hand. This is the moment my people will be liberated and freed. And so significant would this moment be that it would forever change the calendar for Israel. And so significant would it be that God would tell Israel that you must do this feast every year and you must make sure that it happens for every generation Forever. It must be remembered every year, forever, generation to generation. 12 verse 1, chapter 12 verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. This day shall be for you a memorial. Um, chapter 12 verse 14. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. So unique, such a power, display of God's power this moment would be that it would forever change the calendar and it would need to be remembered forever. And so God would tell Moses, before you go to Pharaoh, go to the people, tell them what's going to happen. And Moses would head to the people and he would say this in chapter 11, verse 2, speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold and jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of people. Such a 
wonderful little moment. Just before God fulfills his promise to redeem his people out of Egypt, God fulfills two promises that he made to Moses at the burning bush. The first promise is that you will leave with the wealth of Egypt. And here you see the people go and ask the Egyptians for wealth, and they find favor in their eyes and are given it. Favor in such as not another plague, please. And they find God fulfilling this promise that they were the people oppressed for 400 years would not just leave Egypt, but they would leave with a portion of its wealth. Fulfillment of the promise made at the burning bush. But then we see a second fulfillment of a promise made to Moses at the burning bush. Isn't it amazing? Two weeks ago, but a much longer span of time in the narrative of the story, Moses is there. God's revealed his name. God's revealed his power to him. And Moses still in that space goes, God, send someone else. Or at least send someone with me. And then here, you read that Moses was considered very great by Pharaoh's servants and the people of Israel. And what that is, is a fulfillment of God's promise, I will be with you, Moses. And you see this man go from a weak faith to a growing faith in God establishing him. Not because there's something unique and special in Moses, but because God had fulfilled his promise to be with him. Now, we must be careful (laughs) to think that that's the same story for us. Moses was a unique character with a unique calling and a unique time in the history of Israel. It's not that God would make us great, but the promise that stands for us as those who are Christ followers is that God is with us and he will fulfill those promises. As we go through these seasons of COVID, as we go through difficult and challenges, as Moses faced the greatest empire of the time, God was with him. God is with us. And then Moses would go from this point, and he would go to to Pharaoh. And as he would move to Pharaoh, we're going to see the triumph of God over the false gods of of, um, Egypt once and for all. I wonder by now what it's like for for Pharaoh. I always wonder what's going on in his heart. You know, he sees Moses coming up the stairs towards his palace. He's like, not again. Here we go. And I wonder what's going on in his heart. I wonder if it's like, anxiety and fear. I wonder what's going to happen now. Or I wonder if it's more, oh, bring it, Moses. Whatever you've got, I can handle because I am still God. I wonder what's going on in his heart at this point of the journey. And Moses comes to him and tells him exactly what God's going to do in this last plague. Chapter 11, verse 4. So Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn cattle, there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. The last line shows the uniqueness of this moment. There will be a cry in Egypt like never before and like there will never be again. And what we see here is the battle between Pharaoh declaring himself as the God, a deity, and Yahweh saying, you are not God, I am the one true living God. And what God is doing in this moment is multifaceted, but one of the the things he's doing is against all the gods of Egypt. He's saying, I am the only God that can give life and take life. But there's more going on here. Exodus 4.22, 
This is what God says of his people. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And in this moment, in this last plague, as Pharaoh's heart has hardened, the Egyptians' hearts have hardened towards God and towards his people, God is saying, I will bring my firstborn out of Egypt. I will liberate them. I will redeem them, even if it costs your firstborn. It's my firstborn for your firstborn, Pharaoh. And as you, the one who represents all the people, you're not making a decision just for yourself. You're making a decision for your nation. And we see, we see again the frustration of Moses. That Pharaoh won't heed the warning. That Pharaoh won't relent his pride. That Pharaoh won't bow his knee and admit that he is a created being and that Yahweh is the true God in 11 verse 8. And it says this, And he, Moses, went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land. We don't get the fullness of the conversation, but there's a, a moment in which Pharaoh storms out of, I mean, uh, Moses storms out of Pharaoh's uh, throne room and says, he's angered, and God says, don't worry, he was, he was, his pride was always going to stand, and my power is going to be made known. Now, just imagine the heart of Moses going, Pharaoh, you, it's, your pride isn't just going to cost you pain, your pride is going to cost all your people pain, and you, you, you're meant to steward and love the people that you're called to lead. What is going on? Bow your knee, please. Our God will show mercy. And Pharaoh, in his pride, says no. And Moses storms out in anger. What's going on here? Carl spoke last week of the reality of a judgment day that is coming, a final and complete day where God is going to wrap up human history. And as he wraps up human history, he will let, you will not let any injustice be winked at or ignored. And that we will, no one gets away with anything on that day. And Carl unpacked that so powerfully last week. And what's going on in this moment, in this last plague, is a temporary and initial judgment day. It's a foretaste of what that day is going to be like and feel like. 12 verse 12, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborns in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. Later on, this, this angel, this passing over, would be called the destroyer who would come and take the life of every firstborn. And what we see is this terrible night of temporary, initial judgment day. It's a foretaste of what it's going to be like when God moves decisively against every false god decisively against evil and decisively against the pride of the human heart. And it really was a terrible night. We read, we read the experience of the Egyptians in 12 verse 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborns in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was, great, there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house 
where someone was not dead. And this day back in Exodus is a warning. It comes as a warning. It comes as a reminder. It wakes us up to the reality, to the seriousness of how Yahweh, who has revealed himself, views evil, views injustice. It wakes us up to the reality of how the evil, how, how Yahweh views the pride of the human heart. And it wakes us up to the reality of how Yahweh feels about false gods and their worship as we experience this initial preliminary judgment day. I, was, I grapple. <laughs> I don't just read this and go, wow, I grapple. I go, is this fair? And as I've grappled and as I've tried to work through this, I, I do trust that God is just, obviously, and I do trust that God is good, and I do trust that God's judgments are perfect. But you can't read something like that and not have an emotional response and still be human. There's a sense in which it goes, what does this mean? And we're going to get to that a bit later. But in my grapples, in my taking this to God, I've realized, again, it's probably the wrong question. The the first question is not, is this fair? The first question, rather, is, is he who he says he is? Is he who he says he is? And if he is the creator, if he is the I am who I am, then there are moments where we go, if he is creator and I am created and he chooses to act, then I surrender. Is he who he is? And it becomes less about simply just agreement, but actually coming to terms with he is God and I am not. And God unleashes his power this evening against Pharaoh. And this is, it's amazing what happens. There's a temporary softening of Pharaoh's heart, and we'll pick up why it's temporary a bit later as we get through the book of Exodus. But there's this temporary softening where he sees Yahweh for who he is. Verse 31, then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, up, Go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord, as you have said. Take your flocks, your herds, as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. What an amazing moment. You've got a few weeks ago, we we see Pharaoh being introduced to Yahweh by Moses, and Pharaoh simply says, who is Yahweh? Heap up the burden on the people. And here in this moment... He's encountered God in a very real way. He's encountered the God who gives life and the God who takes life. And you see what he says there, go, go and serve Yahweh. It's a moment of admitting he is the true God. He is the living God. I now know Yahweh. Go, be released. But he goes further. Not only does he say, go, be released, take all your flocks and leave. He says, bless me. Bless me, Moses. I need the blessing of you because you serve the true living God. And so on that day, Egypt experiences the the reality of God's justice against evil. Remember, 400 years of oppression. Remember where this started with Pharaoh killing every firstborn male for a season because he was worried that the nation of Israel was getting too big. And God goes, I will not overlook injustice. 
and he deals with it decisively. I will not let false gods heap up burden on my people, and he deals with them. And I will not let the pride of a man stand in my way, and he softens Pharaoh. And that's the experience of the Egyptians, of Yahweh. But then we also see the grace of God, the grace of God, because you ask the question, what about the people of God? What's been going on throughout the night as, as Egypt's experienced the righteous judgment of God? What have the people of God experienced? 12 verse 12 says this to the people of God. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select a lamb for yourself according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of this house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter the house and strike you. I'm a firstborn son. If I'm in Egypt and I'm a firstborn son, what I've just heard is that there is going to be a force from God that passes through the most powerful nation in the world, passes through the most powerful man in the world like a hot knife through butter. And I'm waiting as a firstborn. I'm like, okay, every firstborn, I'm listening. And that moment, I'm going, okay, now what's the solution for the people of God? And when Moses says, a lamb, I start to lose confidence. It's like a perfect, spotless, white lamb. It's a fluffy white lamb. Destroyer, whole nation of Egypt, fluffy white lamb, and a bry, and some blood sprinkled on it all post. I'm not a confident firstborn son. I'm trying to try trade place with anybody else in the family at that moment. And not only is it not my, my confidence that should cause us to, to, to try to ask what's going on here, but, but we're the people of God. Why a lamb at all? Why do we need a lamb at all. And the reality or the need for a lamb reveals at least two really important things about God's relationship to his people. And the first thing that it reveals is that God's choosing of them was not earned. It was not something in the people of God that made God choose them as his people. Because we might be tempted to go, these people have experienced such great oppression, which is why God has moved towards them in love and chosen them as his people. But they were actually chosen before the oppression. And the need for a lamb, as we'll see, reveals that there is something unique and wonderful about God's relationship to his people. And it's not that his people are unique and wonderful. And it is that God's people are distinct. We see that in chapter 12, verse 7. Part of the plagues is that Egypt would not, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And so it's not that there isn't a distinction between Egypt and Israel. There is a distinction between Egypt and Israel. There is a uniqueness to God's people. But what is the cause of that uniqueness? Why are they unique in the eyes of God? And why is there a lamb needed? 
And Deuteronomy 7 tells us explicitly why God chose the people of Israel. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the people who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number. It's not because you were more in number. It's not because there was something in you that made me choose you than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all people, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. It's explicit. God's love for the people of Israel is not because of their ethnicity, not because of their theology, not because of their status, not because of their wealth, not because of their numbers, not because of what they have, not because even of their oppression or suffering. They are his people because one day God, out of his own good choosing, decided to go to a pagan moon worshiper, Abraham, and say, I love you, and I will reveal myself to you. You don't deserve it. This is unmerited favor, and it's birthed in my choosing of you. And God chooses Abraham, and God makes a covenant with Abraham. And God, in this moment, is fulfilling his covenant to bring his firstborn out of Egypt and redeem them. So the first thing we learn is that the relationship between God and his people is the one based on grace, unmerited favor, undeserved favor. It's the choosing of God. The second thing that we see about the need for a lamb and the reason that there is a lamb is that God's choosing of them was not deserved. So nothing in them is the first point. Nothing unique or special about them. Everything is unique and special about God and his choosing of them. And the second thing is, it goes beyond that. They were not deserving. We've got to ask the question, why a substitutionary lamb? Why did there need to be a substitute? Why did the lamb have to die? Why did the blood have to be sprinkled? Why, why could it not just simply be like Goshen when the flies just flew around and God just said, not here, you're not coming here. And the flies didn't just come here. Why couldn't it just be, as a firstborn son, I'm going, Moses, every other plague, when God wanted to show us mercy, you just didn't let it come. Can we just have the destroyer fly a circle around us, like avoid us? I'd feel a lot more comfortable than a fluffy white lamb. That's, but God says, no, there's, there's a need for this lamb. There's a need for substitution. We need to go back again to Abraham to understand what's going on here. And there's a story in Genesis where, where Abraham, well beyond childbearing ages, age, him and his wife give birth to Isaac, his firstborn son. And that the fulfillment of the nation and the promise of rest in the promised land would be fulfilled through him. And there's this moment in Genesis where God comes to Abraham and says to him, Abraham, I'm taking your son from you. You need to bring him to me in sacrifice. And it sounds horrific. I mean, our modern ears, we hear that. We go, what? I can't even comprehend that or make sense of that. And you go, how is it that Abraham gets up and moves towards that moment? How is that even possible? Well, Abraham knew 
Abraham knew that in the covenant, in the covenant that he made with God, it was an undeserved covenant that, that he didn't deserve relationship with God, that there was a debt between him and God. And that we see through the law of Israel, firstborn being consecrated to God, which is saying this firstborn belongs to God. This firstborn is God's. Even in Exodus 13, straight after this, God would say, consecrate your firstborns to me. And what that represents is that there is a debt between people and God. And that debt rests on the firstborn. Why? Well, back in ancient Israel, the firstborn represented the future of the family, the life of the family, the hope of the family, because they would inherit everything and and they would look after the family and steward the family. And in an individualistic society, we really struggle to make sense of this. But I think in COVID, we've been helped a little bit in that we've realized how much we're interdependent on each other and actually we're not islands that survive. In fact, when we become islands and we're isolated, stuff goes wrong in our minds, stuff goes wrong in our hearts, that we need people and we're connected. And there was this reality that Israel was built on families, on households. And the firstborn represented the health and the future of that household. And God said, the future and the health of every household of Israel belongs to me. There is a debt. And Abraham in this moment realizes that God is calling in the debt on Isaac. God is calling in the debt. But at the exact same time, Abraham is stepping out in faith because he knows that God's made a promise. That God has made a promise that, that, that through Isaac, the fulfillment of every promise made to him, he, he would have a nation born who would find rest in a promised land. And so Abraham, at the same time, is going, God, you're calling in your debt, but there's a promise. There's a promise of a future. He's like, I don't know how this is going to work, but I trust you. And he moves forward. You see, if God had come to him and said, wipe out your whole family, he would have said, never. But he understood what was going on in this moment with his son. And we read in Genesis 22, verse 7 to 8. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. See, this is not Abraham deceiving his son and being like, you are the offering. You're just going to find out a bit later. This is Abraham stepping out in faith going, God will provide an offering. God will provide a gracious means that we won't have to pay the debt. And sure enough, when the moment comes, God says, Abraham, stop. And there is a ram for the offering. God provides for the debt that is owed. And in this moment, we see God providing for the debt of the people of Israel. It's not that Israel was more oppressed. It's not that Israel was more worthy. It's that Israel had been chosen by God. He had set his love upon them. And he had provided a substitutionary lamb to cover the debt. Now the night comes, at twilight we kill our lamb, we roast it, we follow the instructions, we paint the blood on the door, as a firstborn I'm right there watching, I'm like three more coats please, and we put those extra coats on the door, 
And then it gets dark. We go inside. We continue the, the meal, the Passover meal. And I'm wondering, is it going to work? Is it going to work? And I don't know what it was like on that night, but it was probably a wave as God moved over the nation. And they would have he- heard the crying of households all around me. And I would have wondered, is it just the Egyptians or is it also the people of God? Is the blood working? Is the blood working? And then day would break. And in that moment, I would realize it is over. It's done. Morning has come. I am free. I am redeemed. And I have been saved from the oppression of Egypt and the wrath of God. It held. I was covered by the blood, protected by it. And in that moment, I would realize that there is nothing more powerful than the blood of the Lamb. Nothing more beautiful, nothing more meaningful, nothing I can trust in more to protect me from the just wrath of God and to liberate me to freedom and rest. That which I was uncertain of has become my greatest surety that I am covered and I am good with God. In that moment, I feel more safe than ever. I think I've got a quote. Can you pop it up? Because I don't have it here. Very simple. A.W. Tozer. There is no place to hide but in the blood of the Lamb. This is the Exodus story. This is the moment. And and next week we'll pick up as they actually pack up their things and head out of Israel that morning. But the people have experienced something about God and got to understand their relationship with God in a very profound way. It's not that they're better. It's not that they're worthy. It's not that they're good. But that there is a debt and a lamb has paid that debt and they are good with God because of its blood. God passed over them. There's such a random, instruct, well, I thought it was random, instruction in the meal process that God gives in 1246. It says, it shall be eaten and you shall not take any of the flesh outside the house and you shall not break any of its bones. It seems so arbitrary, this, you shall not break any of its bones, but you will see that this is to relate and connect this moment to the Lamb of God who would come. In John 19, 31, verse 37, John says this, John, a witness, he's standing at the cross, and he says, this is what I saw at the cross. Since it was a day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it was, has borne witness His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones was broken. Jesus is the sacrificial lamb. 
There are three moments. There's Genesis, Isaac, a ram is provided. There's the Exodus, redemption and justice, a lamb is provided. And at the cross, a lamb is provided. And a new covenant is instituted where anyone who would come to Jesus would know the experience of the blood of the lamb being their safety and their protection. It's as simple as coming to Jesus. His blood was spilt. He died at twilight. Hundreds of many generations not breaking the lamb's bones, slaughtering the lamb at twilight. And on this day at twilight, the lamb's bones are not broken and no more lambs need to die. And Jesus would experience the father losing his son where God would cry, where Jesus would cry, why have you forsaken me? And God would remain silent. And he would experience the burden of our debt. You might say, why a debt? But we all intrinsically know that where there is evil, there is a debt. If there was a murderer in society, either he pays for the debt by going to prison of his evil, or we pay the debt by letting him roam around in society. Where there is evil, there is debt. And God here pays the debt himself. And so we can find ourselves either those who harden our hearts and go, I am still God, I still worship God's, and we can find ourselves like Pharaoh going, I will reject you because I choose to reject you because I refuse to see you, Yahweh. Or we can be like the Israelites, going, you are Yahweh, and humbly painting the blood of the Lamb above our doors or our lives. And we're going to go to communion now. I'm going to ask the band to join me. This table is an invitation for everyone, whether you're online or whether you're in this, it's an invitation for everyone. We might respond differently in this moment, but it is an invitation for everyone. Charles Spurgeon says this, just as I am, with what, without, without one plea, but thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. It's a wonderful invitation. At the center of the Christian faith is a lamb that was substituted in our place that paid the debt, and that was Jesus God himself. And because of that, Jesus says, I did the heavy burden lifting so that you don't need to. And he comes to every single one of us this morning, and he says, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, I will give you rest. Take my yoke and learn from me, because I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. That's the invitation this morning. And amongst everything, that's the invitation. If you don't know Christ, if you're here investigating the claims of Jesus, if you're here looking in online or in person, your invitation is not first and foremost to a table that represents something. Your invitation is first and foremost to come to Jesus.
to encounter Jesus, to depend on the blood of Jesus, so that on that day when he's wrapping up human history and dealing finally with everything that is wrong in this world, you can stand there with great confidence knowing that he will pass over and you will pass into eternity with him. That's the invitation. And the way that you do that is simply through humility. God, I need you. You are God, I am not. I'm going to give you a chance to respond later. For the rest of us, we're going to partake in this this meal together. For those of us who consider ourselves Christ followers, come to him and find rest again. Come with confidence and joy. Celebrate your sonship and daughtership. It is an act of his good choosing. It is his covenantal love. It is his grace, his mercy. Come as you are, but expect to encounter a living God who will change you. The blood is over your life. It is sure, it is strong, it is safe. And we are those who will be passed over. Let us celebrate together. Now, this communion cups. I had a few people come and say, how does this thing work? <laughs> you open up the top layer, you get your wafer. You open up the next layer, you get the juice. That's how it works. If you're struggling, just take what you get. Okay, juice or wafer. <laughs> okay, we're not going to be too legalistic. But let's start and drink. Let's start with the bread. Luke 22 says this, and he took the bread. This is Jesus at Passover dinner. He took the bread, and when he had given thanks for it, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's remember Christ and his broken body together. Then he took wine, Passover dinner. He said, and likewise the, likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup is poured out for you in the new covenant in my blood. Let's drink together. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to dive into worship. Father, we love you. These are weighty, real, life-giving, joyous. All emotions are encompassed in these sorts of texts. There's a full spectrum of what people will be experiencing in this moment. And I love that invitation to come as we are and encounter the living God who has made a way for us to know him freely. If you're one of those people who want to encounter Jesus for the first time, just pray a simple prayer with me. Jesus, I need you. I repent of my worship of false gods, of the pride of my heart, and I surrender to you. I thank you in this moment I am covered by your blood, that you will pass over me, and that you have invited me into your presence for all eternity. Pour out your spirit in my life and teach me what it means to be a son or a daughter in the household of God. For the rest of us, I just pray a simple prayer. God, where there is burden, where there is heaviness, God, where there is a hiding, where there is a sense in which we have to pretend, God, would you remove all of that in light of your lamb? Jesus, would we be a people who are fully known, free, 
to admit our failures, free to admit our fears, free to admit our burdens to each other. God, there is no reason to hide before the cross. There's no reason to pretend before the cross. You know us. You know what it costs. God, would you fill us with the joy and the hope of the cross? Would you fill us with the life of the cross? And would we be a people free and transformed into your likeness, Jesus, in ever-increasing measure? Would you do this in us, we pray. Amen.